Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. So my name is Matt, and again, just to add to Chelsea's welcome, welcome to you. If you're visiting with us, uh, it is our hope and our prayer that you'd be blessed as we um, journey together through this part of the Gospel of Mark. We've been doing this for over a year now, um, and we're exactly halfway today. There are six... I know, right? Do you think we'll get it done by the end of this year? Yeah, it doesn't matter, does it? Maybe we'll do it again in a few years' time. But we're exactly halfway. There are 16 chapters in Mark, and today we come to the end of chapter 8, and actually the first verse of uh, chapter 9. So from a literary sense, uh, that's where we are, we're right in the middle. And uh, I've really enjoyed this series in Mark. It's been, uh, there's been a lot of stuff that I've learned that I didn't know. Um, from this gospel and there's a heap of stuff to continue to learn so um, if you if you're just new to us or have been wondering what what we've been talking about over the past uh, 12 13 14 months um, all of the messages from Mark are on the on, on the church webpage under the podcast section so jump on and have a listen uh, there's some great stuff in there but it's not just the halfway point from a literary sense This is actually, in storytelling, what we call the centre of the narrative arc. Have you kind of heard that term? I don't know if you've heard that term before. But often a story is constructed in such a way as that it builds and it comes to a point and then it comes towards its conclusion. And we're right smack now at the apex, the the narrative arc. It's the the centre point of what Mark is wanting to say because up until this particular point he's been saying one thing And from this point forward, he begins to say another. And they're connected, and hopefully today we'll begin to see what that connection is. But it's a turning point. It's a hinge. It's like a watershed. Do you know what a watershed is? It's a a geography term. Is that even called that anymore? Geography? You know, when when, when rain falls on the countryside, um, and say say there's a ridgeline or a a mountain, the water flows down one side and goes into one river system, but but if it falls on the other side, it flows that way and goes into a different river system. Does that make sense? Well, Well, that dividing line is called a watershed. It's the point where... The water flows in two different directions. And that's exactly where we are in the, in the narrative of Mark this morning. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through to Mark chapter 9, verse 1 in just a moment. And uh, if, want, if you've got your Bibles or your devices, you can get them ready. Um, we're going to be examining this passage in some detail today. I don't know if Dave told you. Maybe he didn't tell you. I'll apologise on his behalf. But we're going to have a little test this morning. So are you ready? Sorry, there's no prizes. I did think about it, but you know, it's a little bit... I just probably would have eaten them on the way. But, um, so a little test. Um, so it's just one question, so it's not very complicated. Uh, up until this point, Mark has been kind of addressing or asking one main question. Does anyone know what that question is? Who said that? Down here? Who is Jesus? Absolutely right. So you would have got a prize, but I didn't bring one. So thank you very much. Who is this Jesus? And that's the question that he's been asking um, so far in the first eight chapters. Who is he? And we know if you've been tracking along in in our uh, series over the past uh, year or so, that that the book of Mark is a fast-paced and action-packed story. 
And Mark has a heavy focus on the miracles of Jesus, uh, the miracles that he performed. And of course, we've been learning that this is really intentional because Mark is, is painting a picture for his audience of who Jesus is. And more specifically, what he's doing is he's actually laying out a foundation for Jesus's credentials. And that's what he's been doing up until now. His credentials as the Son of God, which of course, as we know from Mark chapter 1 verse 1, can, and maybe there's two questions. Can anyone remember what Mark chapter 1 verse 1 says? This is the good news about who? Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Excellent. That's, that's his whole reason for writing. This is the story, the good news about Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ the Son of God. And what I find really interesting and what we've been discovering is that all through these first eight chapters, Jesus has been trying to stay under the radar in regards to his true identity. And on a number of occasions, we find Jesus instructing people. He even instructs demons and evil spirits to remain silent about who he is. Don't tell anyone. In fact, on a couple of occasions, he commands them, don't speak. Don't say who I am. This is somewhat of a paradox when you think about it, because on the one hand, we see Jesus doing, uh, we, we see him kind of trying to stay out of the limelight, and yet on the other hand, he's doing all these totally amazing uh, jaw-dropping miracles. Just in the first eight chapters, some that came to my mind as I think back through the story, uh, the casting out of demons and spirits is one and he did that several times. He healed the sick on a number of occasions. He restored sight to the blind. He caused cripples to walk. He multiplied food on, on two different occasions. Firstly, to, to 5,000 and then to 4,000 people. We just looked at that the other week. He walked on water. He calmed storms. <laughs> he raised people from the dead. For someone who's trying to fly under the radar, he's not doing a very good job when you think about it. <laughs> the other thing that I find very interesting about Mark's account is that in these first eight chapters, when we compare them to the other Gospels, it doesn't contain a lot of Jesus' actual teaching, not, not a great deal. And the teaching that is included is, is mostly shrouded in mystery. And Mark actually makes a point of highlighting in his message um, in, about Jesus' message about the kingdom of God uh, that it's only really being revealed to those who have ears to hear. It's a little bit mysterious. It's a little bit veiled. And again, I find this to be somewhat of a paradox because anyone who has eyes to see can clearly see the things that Jesus is doing and yet his teaching is a little bit covered, a little bit hidden, a little bit mysterious. But not anymore. Not any longer. Because from this point forward in Mark's Gospel, Jesus' teaching becomes increasingly more focused and increasingly more to the point. It's also interesting, I think, that from this point forward in the story of Mark, as far as I can tell, he doesn't tell anyone to remain quiet about him any longer, not once. So let's have a look at today's passage. Um, we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 8 and particularly we're focusing on verses 34 
um, through to uh, the end of the chapter. But I think that it's important that we just back up a couple of verses and start from verse 27. Dave spoke on this last week. Um, and if, if you haven't heard that, as I said, grab the, the podcast. Um, but as we're, as we're looking through this, I want you to see if you can discover what the context is. I'm reading from NIV this morning. Mark 8, 27, Jesus said to his disciples, sorry, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. And then he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you'd open not just our ears but our hearts and our minds that we might be responsive to what your Spirit wants to teach us today. Amen. So where do we start? How do we tackle uh, this particular passage? Dave was lamenting last week that he had a difficult passage, but I think, I'm not sure about this, maybe this one might be a little, uh, little interesting. And I've certainly struggled over this for the last couple of weeks, and it's been amazing for me personally to discover what's come out of this, and I'm kind of excited to share it with you this morning but where do we start how do we make sense of what Jesus is saying here well first I think it's important that we kind of examine the context the context of this particular passage verses 34 down to the end of the chapter is that Jesus has just finished rebuking Peter but what's he rebuking him for well Matthew actually tells us in his account of this event Matthew says then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him no Lord this will never happen to you What's he talking about? The fact that Jesus has just said that he will be put to death. Peter goes, no, 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 no. That can't happen. That's not going to happen. That's not possible. How could it be possible, Jesus? You're the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised redeemer of Israel. No, 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 no. What are you talking about? (laughs) And Jesus makes... Which is a very interesting statement, and I wish we could explore this a little more today, but we can't really. But Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I think Dave mentioned this last week. He's not calling Peter Satan here. It's a reference to a Hebrew understanding of the name Satan, which really means accuser or the teller of lies. It's a name association, if you like. What he's saying is, Peter, you're not telling the truth. 
You're speaking like the deceiver would speak. Don't speak like that. Why? Because you do not have the things of God in mind. You've got, you've got things of man in your mind. So don't, don't speak those things, is what he's really saying. And this phrase, to have in mind, is very important for us to kind of get our heads around this morning as we move forward to discover the context. It means to have a strongly formed opinion. It implies that a person has made up their mind on a matter after considering the information available and determining that their conclusion is correct. Fellows. You know, when, um, when your wife speaks, you, li- you listen because she's made up her mind. <laughs> but I, I remember, I, I, and my dad often says this in regards to my mum, uh, and we just had a great celebration with them, 50 years married. Um, and mum's 80th birthday, it was a great family time. But I, I, I know on a couple of occasions my dad's saying things like, um, well, you know your mother's made up her mind on this. That's his way of saying, don't bother arguing. <laughs> There's no point even negotiating with her that must be obeyed. She has determined that this is the way it's going to be. And so it is. But that's exactly what this phrase means, to have in mind. And for Peter, this means that he's already formed a strong opinion about who Jesus is. And even though he was correct in identifying that Jesus was the Messiah, there's no mistake in that identity, that he was the Christ, he had it in his mind that Jesus was the long-awaited-for King of Israel, the one who would liberate them from Roman oppression. And as far as he was concerned... This king of Israel had come to rule over a new kingdom in a physical way. The Messiah had come to reclaim the throne in Jerusalem, as David and Solomon and so many other kings throughout history had done, wherever it was that they were at the time. And this, of course, is not actually God's agenda. (laughs) Well, it is in the long run, but not right at this point in history. It's not God's agenda at all. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, but he had not come to rule as a king sitting on a throne. He had come to fulfil the role of the suffering servant king. And that looks very different. And this is the context of verses 34 to 38. Uh, And we need to read these verses in that context. It's also, interestingly, the context of the whole rest of Mark. Remember I said this is a turning point, a watershed, a hinge? From this point forward, this idea begins to grow and take traction and have more meaning for Mark's audience. Because from this point forward, Mark focuses his attention solely, pretty much, on Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem and his appointment with the religious leaders and and the governing leaders of the day who would ultimately send him to the cross. In fact, when you step back and look at the bigger picture of Mark, the whole thing is written in the light of this context, the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And so we find at this crucial turning point in the narrative, Jesus begins to articulate with a much more clarity now the mystery is starting to vaporise, uh, the, uh, the teachings becoming more clear and Jesus begins to articulate much more clearly what it's actually going to cost to be counted 
as a disciple of his? What does that actually mean and look like to be a follower of me? This is especially true in the light of what's about to happen in Mark's gospel in the next few months, the next year. Jesus moving towards Jerusalem and ultimately his death. But more importantly, I think, this is especially true in the light of what's happening in the time and culture of Mark's intended audience, which is different again. Do you remember we spoke, or I spoke well, last year now, about the three different audiences that this book is written to? There's the immediate audience, so the people that Jesus is interacting with in the story, so the disciples and the people that are following him and the things that he does and he says has impact and reality in their life and we can draw so much out of that because we can connect with that and that's the power of of storytelling, I guess, is we can connect emotionally and physically with the story that's being told. But the second audience is the one that Mark is writing to. That's some 70 or 80 years later. Christians are probably in and around the, uh, Rome at the time, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And of course, the third audience is us. God's word delivered to us through Mark. And so we, we get the benefit of two stories, the one that's being told to the characters of the, in the story, and we also can g- gain insight and understanding when we, we understand the context of the, the audience that he's writing to. Does that make sense? It's really it's deep, it's rich. As I said, Mark was written presumably sometime between AD 66 and AD 70, and there's always some discussion and debate about that, but that's roughly when most scholars agree. And it's intended for Christians who are facing suffering, and in particular, suffering for their beliefs in Jesus. And the likely source of that suffering, and history tells us this, is is Nero's persecution of the Christians in Rome and perhaps even those who are caught up in the aftermath of the Jewish revolt. Great persecution. So let's unpack some of this passage and see what we might discover for us today. Well-known pastor and theologian uh, Tim Keller wrote this about discipleship. Discipleship is not just a matter of bending your will to Jesus' will. It's melting your heart into a whole new shape. A disciple is not someone who simply sets a new priority... A disciple finds a new identity. And we see this concept expounded and talked about in our reading this morning. And at first glance, verse 34 looks like it's an instruction about setting a new priority. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And if you're task orientated, that's a great passage. Because it's, it's, you know, there it is. Notice the two ands. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I love steps. It's great. Nothing too hard about that, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Rolls off the tongue. I like it. Until you discover what it actually means. Because to deny oneself literally means to refuse one's self or give up oneself. Just think about that for a minute. It infers a total and abandoning of who you are, intentionally, usually for the benefit or good of others. I was trying to think of some examples of this, um, and one that came to mind was, was the example of parenting. How many times as a parent um, have you put aside your dreams 
your hopes, your desires, your ambitions, your aspirations, in order to focus all your energy and attention uh, on your children or on your home so that you can provide a nurturing and safe place for your kids. We've all done that as parents. It's, it's part of the call of parenting. It's a noble thing. It's a sacrifice of self for the benefit of another. That's just one example I thought of. And then another, which is probably a little more dramatic, uh, might be the example of someone who, despite the risk to their own life, jumps into a dangerous situation to save the life of another intentionally. We all know stories. We might even know some people who have done that. Maybe you've done that yourself. But that's a really good real-life example of what it means to deny self to give up oneself, to refuse oneself for the benefit of another. Taking up one's cross is a little more complicated, especially when you stop to consider that Jesus has not yet even gone to the cross. When this is written, he hasn't yet gone to the cross, obviously, and he hasn't yet even indicated that he will be crucified. All he said to the disciples through any of the Gospels up until this point is that I will be put to death. He hasn't said how. He's just said it that would happen. In fact, Mark 8 is actually the first time in the Gospels and also in the other relevant uh, parallel Gospels, but Mark 8 is the first time that Jesus begins to talk about the fact that he will actually suffer and die in any detail. It's the first time really that they're hearing this. So when Jesus uses the phrase, take up your cross or, or carry your cross, he is in fact referring to a Roman tradition or a Roman custom of forcing a criminal to carry their cross, on, on the cross on which they are about to die. Now we know that because we have the story of, of Jesus being forced to do that and we also know from historians that this is what the Romans did. But you have to understand that this, this phrase, this saying, take up your cross, is a well-known saying in Jesus' day. It's, it's one of the sayings that they would have used. Listen to what one historian notes about the use of the cross. An image of extreme repugnance. The cross was an instrument of cruelty, pain, dehumanisation and shame. The cross symbolised hated Roman oppression and was reserved for the lowest social classes. It was the most visible and omnipresent aspect of Rome's terror apparatus designed especially to punish criminals and to quash slave rebellions. In 71 BC, the Roman general Crassus defeated the slave rebel Spartacus and crucified him along with 6,000 of, 6, of his followers along the Apian Way between Rome and Capua. That's a distance of 167 kilometres. I did the math. That's about one crucifixion every 30 paces. Do you see the picture? A century later, in Mark's day, when Mark writes his gospel, Nero was crucifying and burning Christians who were falsely accused of setting fire to Rome. But really what he was doing was he was trying to squash a rebellion, the rebellion of the way, which is what Jesus' followers were known as, people of the way. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, they understand exactly what he's talking about because they're living it. They know exactly what that statement means. 
The act of carrying one's cross became known as a symbol of shame and suffering. And when Jesus says, take up your cross, what he means is this. He means be prepared to carry the suffering and shame that comes with following me. Be prepared for it. Now, it doesn't mean that one will literally die for following Jesus, although it might, and it did. And between that time and this, countless numbers of Christians have been persecuted for their faith. And even today, large numbers of Christians are being put to death for their faith in him. Do we want to keep going? Do we want to know what it means to follow him? Of course we do. What does it mean to actually follow him? To deny oneself, to take up your cross and to follow him? Well, in the Greek language of Jesus' day, the word follow has a few different meanings. And the obvious and most simple meaning is exactly what it says, and that's to literally follow someone. You know, like if you're going for a walk and there's a person in front of you and you follow them, or you're in the shops and you dutifully follow your wife down the aisle. So it's that type of follow, do you know what I mean? You, you get the picture, right? It means to follow along with someone along a path or, on a, or, or to, to literally follow. But the second meaning is in the sense of having an interest in someone. And for example, the, the word would be used in, in Mark, and it has been used in Mark in another place, as an example of where the crowds followed Jesus. And it's more than just following him physically because um, he, they were following him because he was performing miracles and teaching with authority and they were intrigued by him. And so they actually followed him, not just physically, they actually began to follow him. Do you understand the meaning of that? Let me give you a modern sense. It's akin to following someone on Insta, Insta or Facebook. You, you follow them. You don't literally follow them. They would be stalking and you'd go to jail. But you, you, know, you know what I mean? You get the understanding? Oh, good. It's not actually that complicated, I guess. Or maybe going to see your favourite band at the pub. You know, Every time they play, you go and see them. It's that kind of idea. But there's a much deeper meaning to this idea of follow, which is what Mark is inferring here, actually. To follow Jesus literally means not just to travel with him in the way he is going, but to commit to a deep fellowship with him. It requires a total commitment to him as the one who is leading and involves a deliberate placing of one's trust in him. It also implies a total commitment to obedience and a desire to act in accordance with his example. Now, often you'll hear discipleship described as an apprenticeship model. You know, the disciples kind of assigned themselves to Jesus, and that's kind of how a rabbi and teacher relationship work. But, but to actually, but it's deeper than that. To, to follow someone means to, to deeply connect and engage with who they are as a person, what they believe and what they're doing, and to actually participate in that. That's what it means to follow him in this particular instance. It's a total commitment to his teaching, his way of life and his agenda or his mission. Now, that's not too hard, is it? Right? We can do that. But to be fair, we can't read verse 34 in isolation. Because what Jesus goes on to say provides clarification for what discipleship actually involves. Have a look at uh, verse, um, which verse is it? Uh, verse 35 onwards. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world 
yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? The word life here, it doesn't mean physical life. There's a better Greek word for that. If that was Mark's intention, he would have used the word bios. You've heard of that before, haven't you? Bios, it's where we get the word biology, the study of life. Or the word biography, a life story. But that's not the word used here. The word that is translated here as life is psyche. Meaning self. The inner self, the I that lives inside me. What's that called in psychology? Is that, is that ego? Is, is that, am I wrong? Is that right? Oh, okay, wrong, wrong crowd. Um, <laughs> but you know, point, just point to yourself like this. The person that you're pointing at, that's yourself. <laughs> it's a bit, a bit confronting, isn't it? Some of you went cross-eyed, I saw that. But that's the word that, that is being used here. David Benner, a Christian psychologist and author of the book, The Gift of Being Yourself, defines identity this way. It's who we experience ourselves to be, the I each one of us carries within. We can relate to that, can't we? It's the, the inner me. And what's interesting here is that the word life and soul in this passage, and some translations won't have the word soul, others will just use life, but the word life and soul are the same word, psyche, and they mean the same thing and they're used interchangeably. They're not two different concepts, which is a little bit misleading actually. But that, they're the same word. You can check it out if you want. Go and find your Greek Bible on the, online and check it out. The life within, my identity, who I am. Most of us define our identity through external things. That's, that's human nature. That's what we do. Through our jobs, our financial status, our successes, our grades, our appearance, through what others assign to us or say about us. But what happens when our identity experiences failure? What do we do with that? What if, as a person, we fail? What if we lose someone's favour? What if we lose our job? What if we become burnt out in our job or in our place of ministry or service? What if something happens which dents or shatters our perception of who we are? Well, what happens is that the foundation of our identity is now shaken and what we do as humans is we, we find ourselves in a position where we, we force ourselves to redefine ourselves according to something else or someone else. If, if this isn't working, if this is not working for me anymore, I'm going to find my identity somewhere else. And that's what we do. And, and for a lot of people, they turn to something which is harmful and negative. Not always. Sometimes people can find a, a better identity or a more truer sense of self in something else. But it's not really whole. That's the point that we're coming to. Benner explains it this way, a stable sense of self cannot fully exist when we place our identity in external things. When those things and circumstances change, so does our identity. So when Jesus uses the word life, he's not talking about the physical life, he's talking about the inner life and that's really important to understand in this passage. In effect, what Jesus is saying here is this, and I'm going to paraphrase it, you're never going to find who you really are by trying to find out who you really are. 
you're going to have to lose yourself in serving me. Your old ways of finding your identity, of gaining your sense of self, have got to stop. You have to die to that way of life so that I can give you a whole new identity, a new true self. This is a radical deviation from Eastern, from Eastern, uh, from the Eastern concept of identity. Radically different. And there's lots of different ones, and I've just picked out one to highlight the difference. For example, in Buddhism, the deepest consciousness of enlightenment is to lose all sense of who you are as an individual self. That, that's what they do. The boundaries between you and the rest of reality disappear and the way to humility, peace and self-realisation is to actually lose all sense of who you are. That's so different to what Jesus is teaching. So, so different. But it's also a radical deviation from the Western philosophy of self. And this is where it really hits the road for us, I think. I don't know if you've noticed, and I'm sure you have because you're human and you live in the world as I do, but people in Western society are obsessed, just obsessed. We all are, let's be honest, we're all obsessed at some point with this, with finding and fulfilling our deepest desires. It's like it's the main purpose in our life, the thing that you're supposed to do if you want to find meaning and identity. And as a culture, we are constantly bombarded with competing narratives which try to uh, assign identity to us. Now, a lot of those are phrased in positive ways to make us feel good about it. But I'm just going to highlight a few from the negative perspective because although these things are pitched at us in a positive light, you know, do this, have more of that, you need to be this, you need to... The reality is there's a lot of those things don't work and what we actually hear is how we're not up to that, how we're not good enough to meet those expectations. And so this is how we often hear those things. You're a nobody unless you have a successful career. That's an assigned identity, which is not true. You're a nobody unless you're in a relationship or have a family or a, or a tribe. Now, those things are all good, but it's not who you are. Not totally. You're a nobody unless you have more followers and more likes and have gone viral. <laughs> we laugh about that and, you know, it's a bit silly, really. And I say this with all sensitivity, but, but people end their lives because of this. Because an assigned false identity marker is placed on them. And it's not even a reality. It's not even a reality. And yet there are millions and millions of people selling them, they're, they're selling their souls, their lives, their inner selves to the like button. I've done it. I did it this week. I posted a wicked photo of lightning and I went back every five minutes to see how many people had liked it. <laughs> I, I, you do, don't you? Let's be honest. We do that. And are, are people appreciating my craft? I want to feel... Don't we do that? 
If you don't have social media, I envy you. And it's not just social media. We look for those things in other ways as well. You're a nobody if you don't subscribe to the social narrative and play according to the new way of thinking. This is a big one. If you can't subscribe to the new social narrative, you're a nobody. And so we're going to cancel you. Hello? Who can cancel anyone? No one. (laughs) Not even God cancels anyone. God loves all. (laughs) It's a false sense of identity. It's dangerous. Andrew, if you want to um, come and the team. Listen to what Jesus says. And I really want you to hear this. And again, I'm paraphrasing. Even if you get the whole world, even if you could get the whole world, it cannot give you a true self. But if you lose yourself for me, instead of trying to gain a self by gaining things, if you build everything in your life centred on me, on who I am and what I have done, then finally you will have a true self that fully understands who you really are, a child of the living God. I'm going to read that again. I want you to hear this. Even if you get the whole world, it cannot give you a true self. But if you lose yourself for me, instead of trying to gain a self by gaining things, and if you build everything in your life on me, on who I am and on what I have done, then finally you'll have a true self that fully understands who you really are, a child of the living God. So what's the implication of this teaching? For me personally this week, the implication has been this. And it's quite simply that if I am going to follow Jesus, if I'm going to be a disciple of His, I must live out my belief that God has given me a new identity. I must. Who likes the sound of that? Who here here likes the sound of that? Yes? Who here needs to be reminded of that truth? You've perhaps known it at some point in your life and then it's just all these false identity markers have been kind of crammed and pushed into your inner self and you've kind of lost who you really are in Christ. Does anyone need to be reminded of that? I think we all do, don't we? Every one of us, every day. So here's what I'd like you to do because implication always demands a response. like to know what it means to have a true identity in Christ then in a moment I'm going to ask you to stand up and if you're comfortable even come forward and we have some people who'd love to pray for you and and they're going to be here but perhaps it is that you you've you've once at one point in your life understood who you are in Christ and then that's been crowded out because life does that if you'd like a real if you'd like an opportunity to kind of bring your desire to reconnect with that truth, then I'm going to invite you in a moment to stand as well. And if you're comfortable, come forward. And again, there'll be people who will pray for you who would love to pray for you.
and we have a great prayer team. They're gifted in, in prayer and intercession. But, but you know, if you have a friend or a family member that comes, then you come and pray for them. You might even come looking for a new sense of identity yourself. That doesn't stop you from praying for the person next to you. Would you do that? Stand. There's no shame here. There's no embarrassment. We, we love you. We're your friend. Stand and come forward and we'd love to pray for you. I'm going to give you a moment just to kind of contemplate that truth. And then as you stand and as you come, I'd like to pray a prayer of blessing over you that comes from Ephesians 1. The prayer goes like this. Because of Christ in you, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. You have been chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, grace lavished, and unconditionally loved and accepted. That's a truth. In God's sight, you are pure, blameless, forgiven. You have received already the hope of spending eternity with God. Praise His name. And you are in Christ. And when you are in Christ, these aspects of your identity can never be altered by anything that you do. They can never be stolen by anyone. It is who you are in Christ. So as we sing this song, as the team leads us in this song, if this is your prayer, if this is what you want, then, then please come and receive some prayer. May the Lord bless you this week as you live in your new identity. Amen.